Please take your Bibles. Please take them up and turn with me uh, to the book of Revelation. We are continuing our study of this fourth vision in the book of Revelation, the vision that began in chapter 12 and continues on through uh, the first portion of chapter 15. Um, this next part of the vision it, it is kind of a whole in all of chapter 13, but we're, we're going to split it up into half. We're going to look at each of the different beasts, uh, the beast out of the sea, the beast out of the earth, um, uh, just simply because we could be here the rest of the afternoon were we to look at this together. And um, there's a couple minorly minor confrontations and complications at the end of verse 13 either. Also, chapter 13, which may cause us some extra time. But today we will look at the beast from the sea as we begin in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had the feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter, utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, every people, every language and every nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life, belonging to the lamb that was slain from before the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patience, endurance, and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Let us pray. Our God and Father, you have promised us that uh, you will give us your Holy Spirit to help us to understand and apply some of the difficult passages of Scripture. And so, Lord, as we look at a passage that oftentimes is seen as difficult, we ask that you would give us understanding, give us clarity, and help us to walk closer toward holiness as we read and understand. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you ever heard the phrase, the cliche, you know, he missed the forest for the trees? I remember the first time I ever heard that saying, I was probably a kid and just kind of went, what? How can you miss the forest for the trees? Isn't the forest made up of the trees? Well, the basic idea is that sometimes you can get so focused on the details, the trees, that you miss the grandeur and the beauty of the overarching story, the forest. There's a temptation to do that when we study the scripture. We can get fixated on a particular verse or a particular word, a particular concept, a particular passage, and we forget the glorious story of redemption that God is revealing in all of scripture as we fixate on one 
particular verse or concept. It's a good idea whenever you're studying a particular passage of Scripture, as um, Mr. B from Red Pen Logic on YouTube says, never just read a Bible verse. Read the paragraph, read the chapter, read the book, and just get a sense of where that verse fits within the overarching story, the context of that, where it falls. Revelation 13 is a chapter that has caused a lot of discussion, we'll say, as the pictures and symbols are dissected and interpreted. But many of those interpretations and dissections will focus on the beasts and the numbers of Revelation 13 to the exclusion of the broader concept, context, the context of the fourth vision. If you slow down and pay attention to the words in chapter 13, you will see one word that appears four times that links us back to chapter 12, and that is the word dragon. This chapter references the great serpent or dragon that was shown to us in the previous chapter, in chapter 12. In that chapter, the attacks of the dragon against the people of God, both the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God, are seen as futile. And the dragon is shown to us as defeated by God, cast out from heaven, and wreaking the last of his havoc. This part of the fourth vision, this part that we find in chapter 13, gives us a picture through the picture of two beasts of how the dragon is seeking to attack the people of God. And as we look at these beasts and their activity throughout the history of the church, we need to keep in mind the message of chapter 12. The dragon and all of his minions have been defeated. John is calling you to consider the attacks of the evil one and know that they have been defeated. This knowledge of the evil one's defeat should lead us to hope and to confidence in the face of the attacks to come. Before we look at the specifics, the trees of this vision, let's look at at an aspect of Satan's work that often gets overlooked. In 2 Corinthians 11, 14, Paul tells us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. We'll see this in this chapter as we consider the fact that the, the beast from the sea has a fatal wound that has been healed, mimicking a resurrection. We'll also see that as the beast from the earth is working miracles that point the the earth dwellers, the people of this world, to the worship of the beasts and the dragon. In the history of the church, there has been much worry and thought over the Antichrist. And we'll talk about that more in just a little bit. But this Antichrist is portrayed as a substitute savior put out by Satan to dupe the world and to persecute the people of God. And if we take this chapter with its two beasts and chapter 12 with the dragon into full consideration, we see that there is more than just an antichrist at work in this world. There is an anti-trinity, if you will. There's a dragon who exercises a false sovereignty over the other beast, over the fallen angels and those whose names are not written in the book of life. I say false sovereignty because passages like Job 1 and 2 remind us that whatever power the dragon exercises, he does so at the will of and for the glory of God. There's a beast from the sea that rules kingdoms of this world and somehow pulls off a type of resurrection. And there is a beast from the earth that drives humanity to worship and to service. Satan is in the business of mimicry. 
He wanted God's throne. And when he couldn't have it, he sought to establish his own copycat kingdom. The message of chapter 12 and the rest of the book from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 22, the message of Revelation is that Satan and all of his mimicry of God and his kingdom has been defeated in the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Satan will come in different disguises. He will send his minions in different disguises, often mimicking God. He will give teachings that sound true, and he can even perform miracles that look valid. You are called to know Scripture well enough to discern truth from lies. You are called to examine the ministries of those who claim to come in the name of the Lord to make sure their teaching and their testimony is valid. Know your Bible. Know your doctrine. Don't be afraid to weigh teaching, even mine, against the standard of Scripture to make sure that what you are being taught or what you are seeing is truly from God. One of the best ways to do this is to ask who is getting the glory for this teaching or for these miracles. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra and they heal a crippled man. The citizens of Lystra come to Paul and Barnabas and seek to worship them as if they were the gods Zeus and Hermes. Paul and Barnabas say, no, we are not gods. And they point them to the glory of the one true God. Compare that to Simon, Magus in Acts 8 who asked for the Holy Spirit so that he can have power, so that he can make money. And he ends up rebuked by the apostles. In order to avoid being duped by the one who masquerades as an angel of light, ask yourself who is getting the glory. So now to the trees. We've looked a little bit of the forest. Now let us look to the trees. And first here we see some kingdoms under control. The dragon from chapter 12 is standing on the seashore, and as he stands on the seashore, he stands on the boundary between the land and the sea. When used symbolically in Scripture, the sea is the realm of chaos and evil as it exists in this world. In some places in the Old Testament, it represents humanity under the sway, under the control of the evil one. And out of this mass of chaos and evil comes a hideous beast that resembles the dragon in many ways. The apple does not fall far from the tree. This beast has seven heads. It has ten horns. It is crowned with authority, with a, with a false authority, and it is uttering blasphemies against God and against his people. This beast looked like a leopard that had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. This beast is given authority and uses that authority to make war against the people of God and to conquer them. Let us remember as we consider these words of conquering and conquest by the beast, a, a, a period that is limited by these 42 months or the time, times and half a times that we've seen already that, that mark out for us the boundary of the church age and the tribulation that it will go through. Let us remember the greater context that the so-called victories of the dragon and his beasts are actually greater evidence of his defeat. Satan thought he had won at the cross, and yet that victory ushered in the true victory of God and the utter defeat of the enemy and his forces. To understand the vision of this beast, we need to go back to Daniel 7. I encourage you to read it later. I'll give it to you in summary form here. Daniel sees four beasts that come up out of the sea. He's in a trance. He's having a vision. And then the first beast he sees come up is, is a lion. 
Then he sees a bear, a horrific bear. And then he sees a leopard. And then finally, he sees a beast that is just called a terrifying beast. And this beast has 10 horns and utters blasphemies. These beasts wreak havoc and destruction on the saints of God for a time, time, times, for a time, times, and half a time, or for 1260 days, or for 42 months. After persecuting the saints of God, the beasts are defeated as God is enthroned and gives his authority to one like a son of man. Once God and the human with the glory and authority of God are enthroned, praises and glory are given to God, praises which echo throughout the cosmos. Daniel is troubled by this vision. Understandably so. I would be troubled. You would be troubled having seen these beasts. And he goes looking for an interpretation. The angel comes and tells him that each beast represents a kingdom. And the last kingdom being one that is antagonistic to the people of God and that God's kingdom will be established once these kingdoms have had their reigns and their persecutions. Yeah, persecution, excuse me. Now, commentators have differed on their interpretations of these kingdoms. Some see the last terrifying kingdom that brought pain and agony to the saints of God as being Antiochus Epiphanes, um, who was a Syrian king who took over Jerusalem and uh, uh, committed great atrocities against the, the Israelites there in Jerusalem. Others see the last terrifying beast as, as, as Rome. Regardless of the trees, the details of what these visions are, it's important to remember that God is sovereign. He is ruling over even the most evil of kingdoms and empires. And the authority invested by, G- by in Jesus, by God, to rule and shepherd the kingdoms of this world is an authority, is a power that cannot be broken. So how does understanding Daniel 7 help us understand Revelation 13, 1 through 10, you may be asking? Well, Daniel saw a, a lion, he saw a bear, he saw a leopard, he saw a terrifying beast that uttered blasphemies. And here we have a beast that is an amalgamation of a leopard, a bear, a lion, and a terrifying beast that utters blasphemies. God for John shows Daniel's vision, but instead of four separate beasts, we have one beast that has all the characteristics of the beast that Daniel saw. And this amalgamation, this squishing together, this hybrid of beasts and characteristics, doing this and putting it into one beast points us to this reality. Satan has been allowed a limited authority over the governments of this world, and he will twist God's good gifts of government for his evil purposes in his attempt to destroy the church. You know, government's a good thing. Government has been given to humanity and government has been given the power of the sword to restrain evil. You know, thanks be to God, I do not have to sit in judgment over crimes and criminals. I do not hold, the church does not hold the power of the sword. God has given that to government to restrain evil. But governments are made up of people. And what's the problem with people? We're sinners, we're fallen, we're selfish, we seek power rather than good, and Satan jumps right in there and he will twist those things toward his evil purposes. And there are kingdoms of this world that gain great power, sometimes under the help and the assistance of the dragon, of the serpent, of Satan himself, 
and they are used by Satan to persecute the church. For John's audience, this would have given them great comfort as they were looking at Rome. Whether it was local persecution or empire-wide persecution, persecution was a real and present danger for the Christians of the first century. And oftentimes it was given impetus by local or empire-wide governments. This reminder in this entire vision from the beginning of chapter 12 to the end of 14 or the beginning of 15, this entire vision is a reminder once again that God is sovereign over even that. The Roman Empire had seemingly unlimited power. It could do what it wanted. And what it wanted at this time was to do was to persecute Christians. And yet this is a reminder that the power behind the persecution has been defeated and God is still sovereign over it. For you and I, this passage is a reminder that Satan will twist and use even the best of kingdoms to his own evil and destructive ends in an attempt to destroy the church. But you may say, Ike, we don't live in a kingdom. We live in a republic. We vote for our government. How's that working? God is sovereign over that. God is victorious over the worst that Satan can do. And even if Satan conquers you here on this earth, the greater benefit of heaven awaits the children of God. But what about that wound, that that fatal one that has been healed? This is once again visible evidence that God has kept the promise given to humanity in, in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have sinned and God is proclaiming his curses on the serpent, on Adam and on Eve. And to the serpent, he says that the seed of the woman will come along one day and he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Satan's head was crushed at the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us not to fear the world and the powers behind the world because he has conquered them. And here we have a picture, a reminder of that, that Jesus' work has destroyed the evil intentions of the beast, of the dragon, the beast from the sea, the dragon, and the beast from the land. The enemy is far more powerful and crafty than you and I can think or imagine, but take heart, brothers and sisters. He has been defeated. However, the question remains. Many people look at this beast out of the sea And they automatically say, this is the Antichrist. What about a single person, the end time man who will rule the nations, persecute the church and be a sign of Jesus imminent return? Well, if you have uh, if you have a moment, please turn with me to the book of Second Thessalonians. It's uh, Second Thessalonians, chapter two, and both of his letters to the church in Thessalonica. Paul is dealing with misconceptions about the end times. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says this. He says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness, singular man of lawlessness, is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, 
proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Paul is dealing here with misconceptions, a, a, a misrepresentation of what he has said about the end times. And he's saying, look, this, this man of lawlessness, this one person who is doomed to destruction, he's going to appear. And not long after he appears, Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth. And then the new heavens and the new earth will be ushered in. Revelation is a series of visions that cycle from the ascension to the return in an ever-increasing spiral of intensity. And so a specific person who will be the Antichrist does fit into these cycles at the end of time. And so we will see kingdoms rise and fall. Some of them will get worse. Some of them won't. But the overarching uh, persecution of the church will grow worse until there is a man of lawlessness who appears on the scene to be this kingdom of evil, this kingdom of persecution. Now, the question is, is he here now? I don't know. But if he is, your responsibility as a child of God is to pursue obedience and faithful testimony where you have been placed, in your family, in your vocation, in your hobbies, and in your friend circles. Once again, the question is, is he here now? I don't know. But if he's not, your responsibility as a child of God is to pursue obedience and faithful testimony where you have been placed, in your family, in your vocation, in your hobbies, and in your friend circles. That is one of the messages of the book of Revelation. Things are going to get worse for Christians as history marches along, but be faithful. Being faithful is part of how God is defeating Satan. The faithfulness of his children, their faithfulness and obedience, their faithfulness in keeping to the truths of the gospel is part of the way that God is working out the defeat of the Satan and his minions in this world. These accounts of beasts are not meant to cause fear in the people of God. We must keep the larger forest in mind, the forest that teaches that God is sovereign and victorious and his children are secure. Take heart, God is victorious and the serpent's head has been crushed. That leaves us with a choice of the human response to the work of the beast. Just like Jesus, the beast from the sea is given authority over people from every tribe, from every people, every language, and every nation. And even as horrendous as the beast message is, people will look to the beast in worship and in admiration. In verse 4, we see words that are almost picked directly from places like Exodus 15, 11, 
or, X, or Isaiah 40, 25, or even Psalm 89, verses 6 through 8. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings in the counsel of the holy ones? God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. O Lord God Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. Those are words of worship from the psalmist to God. And we hear the echo of these words as people worship the beast and worship the dragon. Where it says in chapter 13, verse 4, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The earth dwellers of Revelation, those who are contrasted with the children of God, fall down and worship the beast. He is hurling forth lies. He is hurling forth atrocities. He is horrendous and horrific to look at, and yet they fall down and worship him. You know, in our culture today, the true Satan worshiper is a, is a rare person. But people worship personal autonomy in our culture. Just let me be me. I was born this way. This is how I feel, so this is true for me. It's the same carrot that the serpent dangled before Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say, you know, if you want to fulfill yourself personally, you'll go your own way. And in verse 8, the truth of the matter is proclaimed. You either worship the beast and the dragon or your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And by implication, we can say that you worship God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There is no neutral ground in this battle. You are either an earth dweller or you are a child of God. And as the classic rock band Rush has said, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Well, the book of Revelation is written to give comfort to those who are the children of God. There is a warning for those of you who sit in this place unrepentant and outside of God's family. Choose now whom you will serve. We're told at the end of chapter 12 that Satan is angry. He hates the church because his time is short. And as his time is short, he is seeking to gather as many to him, those who will carry his mark and worship him, as many as he can gather to take with him into the fiery pit. Who can defeat the beast? We'll see in chapter 19 that it is a great, the great rider clothed in white speaking the sword of God from his mouth our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who will once and for all defeat the, de defeat the devil, defeat his beast, and cast them into the fiery furnace. And at that point, it will be too late for those who have turned their back on God and worshiped the beast. And so your time is short as well. Your allegiance is according to your choice. Do you worship God or do you worship self? And in worshiping self, worship the beast. Names have been written in the book from before the foundation of the world, but we know who those people are based upon their profession, based upon their belief and their embracing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for them so that their sins could be blotted out and so that they could be forever known as the children of God. He who has an ear, let him hear these words, this call to choose you this day whom you will serve. So the Satan, the devil, the dragon, Satan raises up his beast from the sea. 
symbolizing the kingdoms of this earth who have been turned against God and against his church. And we're left with these words at the end. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. This is kind of a rewording of some words that we read from Jeremiah 15 earlier when when Jeremiah was proclaiming God's words of judgment upon the nation of Israel. But God uses them here kind of in a in a twofold way. Number one is to remind the church, hey, you still live in this world. You still live in a world that is oftentimes controlled by those who are under the sway of the evil one. Some of you will be put into captivity. And that is your God-ordained, God-glorifying fate. Some of you will be killed with the sword. That is your God-ordained, God-glorifying fate. This calls for patience, endurance, we're told later, and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Whether you are put in captivity, whether you're killed with the sword, whether you're called names on the street as you walk through town, whether people slander you on Facebook because you are faithfully enduring and obeying and being faithful to the testimony of God, God is glorified in that and he will sustain you in that. But there's a warning here as well, because as I said in Jeremiah, these words were used as a judgment upon those who had turned their back upon God and were worshiping the gods of this world. Judgment will come. The book of Revelation as a whole calls the church to faithful endurance and faithfulness to faith to endurance and faithfulness on the part of the church. We will, in the power of God, endure the attacks of Satan and his beasts. We are called to faithfully proclaim the glories of his gospel. Brothers and sisters, take heart. It's a hard world to live in, but it's a world where the beast has been defeated and God is glorified. May you and I be found faithful when we hear God's trumpet call. Let us pray. God and Father above, we do thank you for these words, for this reminder that while the beast may do his worst, He has been defeated because our Lord and Savior has done his best. A best which was perfect, a best which was sanctifying, glorifying, justifying, and regenerating. And so, Lord, may we live in the knowledge that no matter how much the world turns against us, no matter how much governments turn against us, remind us of your victory, of your sovereignty, and lead us to endurance and faithfulness. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As you go this week, take this blessing upon you. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.